Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me are my co-hosts, Tina. Hello. And we have Deba. Hi, everyone. And we have Alex. Hey. Today's guests, we have two of them, are PhD candidate Arkan Gyun. Hi there. Hi, Arkan. Thanks for joining us. And we have Professor Russ Pesklevitz. Hey, Dean. Hi, Russ. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So you guys have a paper published recently, which made the rounds in the international news. So we want definitely wanted to, to get you to help us understand. But before we go into that, I'd like to ask some more personal questions about you and your academic history and your path that got you to where you are. So I guess let's start with Arkan. What got you interested in earth sciences or geophysics? And was there like a moment in university where you decided that this is kind of what you wanted to do? I think it's a long story because my father is a geodesist. So since I was a kid, I've been into the field works with him. So I was always interested in somehow in the earth sciences, but of course not geology, but geodesy. So I decided to do my undergrad from geodesy. So when I was in Turkey, uh, Istanbul Technical University. But during my undergrad studies, I had so many friends there studying in geology. And when we were working for studying for the final exam, so in the library, and I realized that there are so uh, interesting topics like a fault, fossils, everything. I stopped, you know, studying for my own exam and <laughs> decided to have a look at what they are working on. So it was one of the things. And also the second thing, as you may know, Turkey is tectonically an active region and we are living with earthquakes. Like everyone in Turkey is somehow related to earth sciences, somehow somebody, I mean, it's about people scared of earthquakes and other aspects. You're always living with this reality. So. These two things made me to do a, a double major in geology. And after that, I continue my studies and master's studies in geology and structural geology, field geology, etc. Then I ended up continuing the So I forget about geodesy. <laughs> it's just a thing in the past. <laughs> Yes, some of us have actually been to Turkey. It's 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 actually such a beautiful place. I, I loved it. And we learned a lot about the tectonic history, about the frequency of earthquakes. And we actually had that trip with Russ. Russ, would you like to uh, give a little bit of input on that as well, on our on a trip if you want, or and also your academic path? Oh, sure. Uh, lots to talk about that. When was that trip? That was a couple of years ago now, right? A, a number of you. Tina was there. Alex was in Turkey as well. I, I mean, we go to Turkey in tectonics because it's right on that plate boundary, right? We see volcanism. We see in Cappadocia, it's this beautiful volcanic area, one of those beautiful areas in the world. So I think everyone in their lifetime should get a chance to go to Cappadocia sometime to see that. Uh, then we look at the Western side and we see well, more volcanism, but we see the anthropogenic relations to geology, where we see Ephesus, kind of the history and how it interplays with with some of the, the geology and tectonic events that go on there. So yeah, cool. We hope to go this coming fall too. If we have any listeners who are going to take my tectonics class in the fall, you'll get a chance to go to Turkey maybe again too. 
In terms of my geologic history, it's a little weird. I think like a lot of people, we fall into it in different ways. My undergrad is in engineering, my PhD is in physics. So in some ways, I really got hardcore into geology when I was a faculty member joining a department of geology. I always did geophysics, looking at computational fluid mechanics. And I, I worked in petroleum in Calgary a little bit, doing seismic stuff. But it's when I got to U of T here and in the Department of Geology that we really took on kind of uh, this research in tectonics and plate tectonics. And I guess that's what we're here to talk about today. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Alex, would you like to uh, start us off before we get to the paper summary with a sort of a preamble? Yeah, for sure. When some people consider different scientific fields, they often put them into two camps, those with a unifying theory and those without one. A unifying theory is a single framework through which the other questions in that field can be answered. Unifying theories often represent a driving force that makes the world the way that it is. Biology's unifying theory is often said to be the theory of evolution, while physics is still working on a unifying quantum mechanics and relativity. When studying our planet, there's an especially powerful driving force that many consider to be the unifying theory for the earth sciences. This is the theory of plate tectonics. When you examine a geologic process, it is likely that plate tectonics has had something to do with it. Mountains, oceans, volcanism, ore deposits, and earthquakes are just some of the many things that are caused in part or in full by the movement of the Earth's tectonic plates. Plate tectonics has truly revolutionized our understanding of the Earth and helped solve many of its mysteries, but having a unifying theory does not mean that we understand everything and the work is done. It may be more accurate to say that having a unifying theory exposes even more questions to answer in this field. Researchers like our guests today have many interesting problems left to solve, and we are excited to have them here to share their latest discovery. The paper we'll be discussing today is a newly published article in Nature Geoscience on the topic of plate tectonics, and it is yet another collaboration between the University of Toronto and Istanbul Technical University. In an earlier episode of Earth News Interviews, Dean and Sophia sat down with Oz to discuss an article about continental drift theory, which both Russ and Erkan here also co-authored. So before we jump into any specifics of the paper, could you briefly explain what the plate tectonic cycle is and what drives it? So it's a kind of debated topic because what drives plate tectonics is, it depends. Some people think that this subducting slabs, oceanic lithospheres are the main driving force of plate tectonics because of the dense nature and they pull all the plates together to the subduction zones and they're creating all the rest. But other theories also say that it's because of the heat of the inside the earth and it creates this, all these convections, everything creating mid-ocean ridges and they push the plates uh, different size and creating this plate tectonic cycles. So it is could be both. And I tend to support the, the first idea that this, this subducting lithospheres, ocean lithospheres are the main driving force. But also, Russ might think different. I'm not sure. So, so this is my models like a show me. I mean, this is what I think is this main driving force is the subducting place. But yeah, if we look at the, this like a general picture, this cycle, this place move and they diverge in place, they are creating the new oceans, and then after that, they collide each other. If there are dense oceanic lithospheres, they subduct into the earth and they sink into the earth. And then they consumed by these subduction zones when these two plates collide. But if they are continental plates, 
So when they collide each other, they are both less dense. They tend to float, so they cannot easily sink into the mantle atmosphere uh, of the Earth. So they create these huge mountain beds, like orogenic beds, similar to Alpine Himalayan system or North American Cordillera, this kind of origin. That's a good fundamental description. Let me kind of emphasize one of Erkan's points that it's, it's controversial. I don't know if controversial is quite the right word, but it's still uncertain about plate tectonics. One of the fundamental things is why it occurs. So the example I like to give is Venus in our solar system is essentially Earth's twin. They're exactly the same size, Earth and Venus, that have exactly the same composition, all of the same chemical elements, all of the same rock in the interior and the core and convecting mantle, yet Venus has no plate tectonics. Its surface is a single plate planet. There's nothing going on there. I I mean, there can be volcanism, maybe, just little spotty volcanism, but why is it in our one solar system alone? We we don't know so much about planets, but in, in the ones we can see in our solar system, why do we have two twin planets? One has this incredible plate tectonic system where the plates on a massive scale are shifting around over billions of years, And then Venus, our next door neighbor, our our twin planet, is just sitting there dead, essentially, in plate tectonics. So, I I mean, it's kind of the big picture question. Why does Earth have plate tectonics? And then this leads to other questions or other implications that plate tectonics is key to supporting life on Earth because it helps support the carbon cycle on the planet. It brings down carbon from the oceans into the interior of the planet and helps regulate temperatures and all this other stuff. But Fundamentally, why do people like Erkin and I study plate tectonics? Well, it is, going back to Alex's point, it is, it's kind of the linchpin, really, of understanding geologic activity on Earth. But it is a mystery. I mean, it's a core mystery why the Earth has plate tectonics and something like Venus doesn't. So the focus of the paper particularly looks at what plate tectonics do at subduction zones. And I know Erkin sort of touched on this already, but what exactly happens at these subduction zones? I mean, as I said earlier, so when these two plates converge each other, so usually this oceanic atmosphere sinks into the earth and along these subduction zones and subduction trenches because they are denser. But also these oceanic atmospheres, so or oceanic plates, they also carry some part of the continental atmosphere with them. So in this paper, actually, we are talking about a case that we call them microcontinents because they are not really huge continental fragments, but rather five, 600 kilometer wide, maybe it could be a little bit bigger than that. But these, these fragments, or we call them terrains, actually continental terrains, they are carried by the movement of the ocean atmosphere to the subduction zones. So when they reach the subduction zone, this is normally what is, has been proposed. So due to their buoyancy, uh, they tend to accrete the overriding plate. So maybe I should also start saying that there's two plates. One of them is overriding plate, which is, stays always on the Earth's surface. The other one, the approaching or incoming plate or subducting plate, is called also proplate. So it tends to sink into the mantle inside of the Earth. So when this incoming plate or subducting plate brings these continents to the subduction zone, they usually upgrade to the overriding plate. They go to the other side. And the subduction either 
stops because this plate choked the subduction zone. And then after that, it may continue again. But essentially, this is this very well-known process that's called terrain accretion mechanism. And what has been also proposed that when this carried continental fragments or continent, we can think about even like an island or something, they pile up on the overriding plate because they cannot sink and they come and upgrade or amalgamate it to the overriding plate. But at the end, they kind of, you squish them in a little in the zone and you uplift that region because of this piling up. But they cannot stay very high or thick maybe. And after that, they tend to collapse uh, by their own weight and creating extensional zones. For example, agency between Turkey and Greece is an example of a similar system. So there are lots of continental fragments come to the Hellenic Trench, Hellenic subduction zone, then they are created to the overriding plate, but at the end, so they collapsed due to either this gravitational collapse, we call, or trench retreat. Trench retreat is a process that the subduction zone or subduction trench, I mean, the, the boundary between these two places is not stable. It's also moving back or forth. So usually they tend to move to the back. This is called a slab rollback or trench retreat. It opens more space on the overriding plate. And when you open more space, this accreted or amalgamated plate start to extend. We call this extensional deformation. This is very, very, very well known process that's been recognized by plate tectonic theories or other theories. But what we are proposing here is different. But before I continue, maybe Gus might want to add something else on this. Well, maybe we can add. I mean, I mean, the typical thing we talk about, just to give listeners and, and everybody perspective, is, is just what the subduction process is like. So it's using the concrete example, the whole Pacific plate is subducting. The Pacific plate is huge, thousands of kilometers wide, and it's drifting. I mean, this is a complicated thing, but it's drifting towards Asia. As it goes to Asia, as you say, Aircon, it's getting consumed. So it's diving down. It's getting sucked down into the into the earth. How quickly is that process going on? Well, plate tectonics is pretty slow. Over geologic time, it it's going to work its magic. But on human time, it's moving about as fast as your fingernails grow. So if you're standing in Japan, you see the Pacific plate coming to you as fast as your fingernails grow, a couple centimeters per year or something like that. But it's massive. I mean, if we multiply that by millions of years, in 100, 200 million years, we're going to consume the entire Pacific plate. The Pacific Ocean is going to disappear because all of that plate gets subducted. So, Tina, we're kind of looking at the dynamics, effectively, of what happens to the Pacific plate as this subduction process goes on. And that's what we're really not sure about because it's a hard thing to study. I mean, it's beneath the sea We've got to look at the seafloor and then down another 200 kilometers. And so we're looking at the tectonics of that plate as it's getting subducted, kind of that act of subduction. But to further complicate things, I hate to say this, the further complication is we're looking at some events that occurred millions of years ago as well. So the Pacific plate is the contemporary or the present day subduction. We're looking at subduction events that might have occurred 10 and 50 million years ago. And I'm not a geologist, but geologists are very clever and they've found ways to help decipher some of those events. 
So yeah, that's a, a quick quick rundown on, on some of the subduction we're looking at. So in your findings, you guys propose a new mechanism that you coin as the subduction pulley, and it basically drives the extension of a microcontinent before it would collide with the overriding plate. So Erkan, can you tell us what a subduction pulley is and how you sort of came to discover this process? I'm not sure if the subduction pulley is our, I mean, this is the thing that we first suggest, but what we suggest here is that the subducting plate has subducting slab actually has a weight, right? It's similar to, we have, we are using an analogy to tell the reader to imagine what is going on in subduction places. That's why we are using the subduction pulley analogy. So actually this subducting plate is, you can consider as a weight because it, it is denser and is sinking into the earth and it is pulling the continuation of its upper part because this sinking slabs almost a vertical or subvertical orientation. But we know that the plates are moving horizontally, right? All these the oceanic lithospheres or oceanic plates or continent plates, they tend to move horizontally. I mean, there is also a vertical tectonics, but we are not talking about here. So you already had this talk with O's. But we need to something to convert this direction of these stresses from vertical to sub-vertical to uh, horizontal. That's why we come up with this idea, this pulley analogy. Pulley is kind of, most of us know that from the physics actually, right? It's convert the direction of the stress. So we are thinking that this trenches in the subduction zone is a kind of similar to pulley. And this weight is pulling its continuation on the upper part of the lithosphere. And it transfers this the pull stress or tensile stress or extensional stress to the horizontal orientation. And so what we are saying, but, we, but also I should also talk about this microcontinent. So we, I already mentioned that these microcontinents are drifting to the subduction zones with their host plates. I mean, we can consider that they are carried by the this host plates, oceanic lithospheres, but they're also pulling these microcontinents. So when they are, they are pulling, drifting, carrying these microcontinents to these subduction zones, something happens. So what is that? So actually, these microcontinents or continental crust or continental lithosphere is weaker than oceanic lithosphere. So while this oceanic lithosphere can resist tensile stress or extensional stress, these microcontinents or continental lithosphere cannot. So they become a focus of extensional stress and they couldn't stay undeformed. So although most of the ocean lithosphere stays undeformed when they are moving or drifting the subduction zones or subduction trenches. So what we suggest here is microcontinents cannot because they are weaker. So all this extensional stress focuses on this microcontinent and, and they extend. And we found some examples, geological examples, to support this idea. Russ, do you want to add anything about this? Yeah, I mean, Eric Ken explains the pulley idea. I think the main thing, as he says, is, is kind of the transfer of stress from vertical, and that's the slab that's descending way down hundreds of kilometers into the planet, and transferring that to horizontal stretching of the plate. And that's that's our key discovery. We're showing that 
for the first time, what we teach you, what we teach students in class is that these plates aren't deforming except right at the plate boundary. We kind of show otherwise here. We show that this subduction pulley is actually causing extension of the plate in a fairly uh, significant manner in places where we didn't expect. And these are these terrains that Ericann talks about. So we see the plate actually being pulled apart. It could be the Pacific, it could be the old Tethys plate that we look at as well in this study, but these plates are being pulled apart in kind of weird new places. And that's that's fundamentally what our new idea is. So it just asks us to revisit really some of the main ideas of plate tectonics, that the plates maybe aren't so rigid in the places we think they are. Tina, would you like me go in detail in some of the evidence of that? Or would you like Aircan? It's it's kind of cool. Well, let me just say in, in a couple minutes, you know, how did how did we kind of discover this? It, I think we should give credit, Aircan. Aircan, you can correct me, but I think the discovery is really rooted in the geology. I, I mean, we didn't we didn't kind of come up with this as a theory first. I think we we saw the observation or we discussed observations like this that were mysterious or, or uncertain to geologists. And those are one of our co-authors, Gultigan at ITU, Istanbul Techn Technical University, is a really good geologist, a petrologist. And he noticed these rocks that before they even got to a subduction zone seemed to undergo extension. The rocks would be buried to depth. And what he noticed when he, he can look at the pressure temperature time, and that effectively gives us some idea of how deep these rocks are. But again, he's a clever guy. Uh, clever techniques in geology allow us to interpret how deep these rocks were and what their histories were. What he saw is the rock was actually coming to the surface, rising up. And that's a signal of extension. So he looked at rocks on the surface. He said, look, before they even get to subduc a subduction zone, why are they getting pulled apart? Why are they extending? And then we kind of stepped in and we married some of those ideas. We would have chatted with it with Coltigan over a beer or whatever and came up with ideas. Maybe it's something like this. Maybe the slab is helping pull these plates apart even before they get to subduction. And that was kind of the key discovery when we linked the geological observation to the dynamics, the geodynamics, we would call them, of, of subduction. Russ, if I could ask a question. So this, the way it's covered in the news is that it's, you know, it changes, makes changes to the plate tectonic cycle. Turkey is a really unique place in the world, right? Tectonically. So I would like to know how generalizable is this early extension, this early deformation to subduction zones around the world? Are you expecting that it would be kind of equal emphasis and equal amount of the force causing this extension around the world? Or is it just like, would you say it's just a special area in the world? Yeah, great, great question, Dean. I, I mean, you're effectively asking, is it ubiquitous? Will we see this? Type, is this process unique to... In our paper, we looked at two examples. One was in Turkey and one was in the Italian Alps. So the question is, is it unique to those places? It's a good question because we're trying to answer that right now. <laughs> it's the focus of our current work. We strongly believe that this is a fairly broad-based, or this should be fairly broadly applicable to all tectonic regions. We have no reason to believe otherwise. What we're trying to understand is how much some of these other regions could extend, for example, where the extension can occur, how long does it take, other nuances like that. Again, the challenge for us, Dean, really in answering your question is we have 
the earth isn't perfectly geologically surveyed. And so what we need, we need a million geologists out there looking at every plate boundary and helping decipher all these rocks and taking them all to the labs and looking at those data for us. And this is where we are. We're kind of at that fork in the road. What we need to do then is pinpoint certain area, other areas where we think this is happening and study those in more detail. So the quick answer to your question is, yes, we think it is a ubiquitous process. Air Canada can answer for himself. I very much think it is. Uh, and I think we're just starting to discover this. The discovery we made of these, this pre-collisional extension is very new and, and requires fairly careful geologic analysis. Just one more point I want to make on that, just to give some idea of a challenge. We're looking at deformation in rocks that occur before a tectonic collision. So imagine this poor little rock particles coming along, it's coming along, it's on the Pacific Ocean, it comes to a subduction zone, it collides there, or a collision zone, it collides. Now it's forming a mountain belt. It's going to form a mountain belt like the Himalaya or something. It gets sucked up to eight kilometers elevation, like Everest or something like that, and then buried down into the earth. And then a million or 15 million years later, a geologist has to come and decipher that whole history. So it's a very complex problem to back out. We've got to back out to the early part of the tectonic life cycle of that particular rock, because a lot has happened to it afterwards. And that's one of our challenges. But yeah, sorry, Dean, I'm, I'm kind of going on and on about this. But yeah, we think it is fairly broad based, but give us some time and we'll try to give you more evidence on that. Cool. No problem with giving more info. So that's fine with me. Erkan, what would you add on that? I mean, I will say maybe this process has not been discovered previously because partly, I think, collision related overprinting. So we know that these terrains or microcontinents, they extend. Uh, they may extend before they reach the subduction zones. But after they reach the subduction zones, something else is happening. They collide, all this, you know, post-deformation, post-collisional deformation, and also post-collisional extension, they overprint previous deformations and metamorphic histories. So when a geologist go to the field and then you know, pick up samples or you know, maybe map the area, so they tend to think, these are collision-related or post-collision-related extensions or deformations. But it's really hard to discover if they are from uh, before the collision or after the collision. And we were lucky that our co-author, I mean, you're taking Topus, and he went to this eastern Anatolia. He collected his own samples, and he mapped the area. And he realized that, no, this, this, this should have happened before, long before the collision. And it, even his data says this extension or this, or this I will say, mid or low crustal rocks come to the surface 20 million years ago before the collision. It's a really like a long time. So, and when we dig in the literature, it's really hard to find evidence because no one considered that way because of maybe lack of such a proposed mechanism before. Because you tend to fit everything, the ideas that all get available, right? So now we are maybe we are hoping that now there is something else, our idea. Maybe people start to think, oh, okay, this could have happened that way too. So maybe I should consider this one. Maybe we will get more evidence, but we are not going to find them. Maybe geologists will help us. And also we have more evidences. Yeah, we are still working on that. They are coming. <laughs> 
So how is the advent and development of supercomputers and the ability to access computing power on a scale that was unthinkable a couple of decades ago impacted the geosciences? So our challenge really in doing this type of modeling is we can't do it on a bench top, right? The geologic processes over, occur over millions of years. The scales are thousands of kilometers. We can't, like a botanist, grow an earth on a desktop like they would grow a plant or something and look at how different plants grow. Or so I'm simplifying botany here. But we then look at theoretical computer models, essentially building what I call a matrix earth, a virtual earth, a simulated earth. And we're going to collide a whole bunch of these plates together. We, and I'm saying Aircan is kind of the lead doing the modeling and can elaborate on this a little bit. He develops these virtual earth models where he will take, for example, an ancient Tethian collision. The Tethys is the old ocean that separated Africa and Europe. And that's kind of primarily where we're looking at this paper. So Erkan has built these theoretical models or these simulated models where there's a simulated ocean plate and a microcontinent and a simulated Europe, and then collides these things together. Those collisions occur over 50 million years or something. There's no other way to do this except as a theoretical computational fluid dynamic experiment, which is what we do. Now, I won't get into the nuts and bolts of how we create the model. It, it involves understanding the physics and math and then translating that into computational code. But we have a fairly good idea, just like you can simulate the flow of water or atmospheric disturbance and meteorology is all theoretical fluid dynamics. We do the same for the Earth, really. Now, to solve that, to get to your question, to solve that, we need fairly good computational power. We need to resolve, in our case, rock packages that are near the surface, and they can be as small as a few kilometers. Again, Air Ken can elaborate on that, a few kilometers and, and, and even smaller. So what we do is make a very fine, detailed Earth model, but it's still got to be a few thousand kilometers wide and a thousand kilometers deep and, and all of this stuff. So we build this thing, we throw it at the computer, a uh, supercomputer and crunches through there and gives us the numbers. And we see essentially the earth history simulated through our models. Now, the one thing I want to say or should emphasize is these are all simulations. So what we like to say in the modeling world is we, one thing we know for sure is every one of the models we do is wrong. Like none of them are the earth. They're all some approximation. What we have to understand is the processes. We try to break it down a little bit to understand. Aircon did a good job explaining the subduction pulley. How would then theoretically that slab pull? What is the stress involved in this transfer across the subduction pulley? And that's why we do these models, because they actually give us numbers. So what magnitude of extension, extensional stress do we get from a model like that? Well, we can give you that answer and we can say that that's enough stress to pull apart a plate and it pulls it apart this much. And that's essentially what we did in this paper. So the computer modeling allows us to actually put numbers to a hypothesis, which wasn't available. Somebody like Tuzo Wilson had great ideas and revolutionized and created plate tectonics. What we can do now, though, is put some better numbers on it and really quantify that. And to get back to kind of one of my primary questions, why don't we see these processes on Venus? We need these numbers. We need to figure out exactly why or why not Venus's surface might break up, for example, and what the stresses are and quantify all of these processes. And the computer modeling allows us to do that. So Erkan, do you want to add to that? What would you fill in, in terms of your modeling? I will say maybe give some examples how long 
does it take to run a model? For example, in this paper, you see only results of 12 models, actually, but, but we run hundreds of them. And it takes time because you're testing parameters. And every time you change a parameter, you have to wait 8 to 10 hours, depending on the computer power, to get the results. And these are 2D models. And consider that you are running these models in 3D. Sometimes it takes weeks to finish. Even if you did something wrong, and if you, even if you are not going to get good results, you have to wait that time. So that's why the supercomputer kicks in. So if you have a faster computer, you can get your results as quick as possible, and you can change your parameters and move on, and you get your results faster, and we can continue your research faster too. So that's why we are using supercomputers if possible. Also, you can run these models on your laptop too, but it will be much slower to run and get the results. Which supercomputer do you use? Does U of T have one? It's a complicated answer to your question, Dean. So Canada has a what's called Compute Canada, which is a fantastic program. Compute Canada, if, if people want to look it up. They have a really nice website and, and all this. Compute Canada is a consortium of supercomputing power across all of Canada. And it's it's available to academic institutions and even non-academic institutions, I believe. So the strategy in Canada was to gather all of these resources rather than have one supercomputer at U of T and one at Queen's and one at Western, we've gathered and pooled resources so that regionally we have supercomputing power. The primary one that we have an allocation on is called Niagara, and it is actually housed. It's hosted by University of Toronto, and it's the fastest research supercomputer in Canada right now. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Again, if people are interested, you search Compute Canada and find out about Niagara, and they can tell you how many teraflops it can perform at and Stuff. So, yes, kind of the, the supercomputer is housed at U of T. It's not actually housed on campus. It's in some warehouse north of the city. I, I don't even know where. But it is hosted by U of T, and the expertise is there to help run it and, and support the machine. As Erkan says, though, I mean, you can scale these problems all the way down to run on your laptop or anywhere in between on a PC. PCs are incredibly fast these days. So it's a great time to be doing this type of theoretical work because it's just so accessible the resources to be able to do computational geodynamics. So obviously there's always going to be a better computer somewhere. Or you can always have more teraflops, you know? So in the perfect world, what are you missing from your simulations right now? Like what would you add on if you had just infinite time or infinite computing power to do what you wanted to figure out? Like, is there something that's really missing? One thing you had to compromise on, on your, in your simulations? Erkan, I'll let you go first. I think Erkan and I have, might, might have very different answers on this. That's a good question, Alex. Yeah. I mean, I tend to consider myself more geologist. So I will say, I think computing power is not the case here. We need more evidence about serology or the parameters of the, like, what kind of parameters, or for example, or we need more evidence from the inside of the earth. So what is this mineral transitions, for example? What phase from the which phase, ectogetization? We need to get this more data to simulate more precisely what is going on, right? So because we are estimating right now some parameters, we don't know what is really happening. There are some experiments. We are getting these numbers that we use in these models, and we are 
you know, plug in these numbers and we are uh, running these models. But if you get better numbers, parameters, depending on the maybe experimental studies or maybe near geophysical techniques, for example, seismic tomography is very helpful actually for us. And also maybe geologists might have better techniques and they can collect rock samples and they can give us better ideas what is happening in the deeper part of the earth. So then we can simulate better models. But as I said, I don't think this computing power is the limiting thing here. I think there are other things to we should implement our models and that they will come from geologists, geophysicists, physicists, or meteorites. So one of the key things that you know that gives us the clue about the, what is happening inside of the Earth is meteorite. We need this data too. So I will say these are the challenging points for modeling maybe. Russ, what do you think? Yeah, okay, I, I do agree with you. <laughs> Finally. I would just add to it that, yeah, so it's really the rock rheology is, is one of the big things. So Alex, we don't really know very well how rocks behave. And unfortunately, I hope everyone's held a rock in their hand. Rocks are different, so different. They're so variable. They're so heterogeneous that we simplify rocks because we have to in our numerical model. We need more and more data. We need huge amounts of data to classify those rocks. That's a huge, huge challenge for us, but that's what we really need. The other thing we need, what I want, Alex, if, if you're allowing me to ask for anything, I want to send somebody back 50 million years to map for us the tectonics of the Tethys Ocean then, and then I want them to go at 40 million years and 30 million years and 20 million years. I mean, this is the problem in geology. We, we have a snapshot of the Earth present day. What we are always seeking is, is its history because it's all of these past events on Earth are telling us what the present is, right? I mean, it's all we have. And the Earth is moving so slowly for us puny little humans that it's hard to conceive of some of the processes and, and understand them fully. So, you know, I'm being a bit facetious, you know, about sending someone back. But again, fortunately, we have a lot of clever scientists that do work in geochronology and tectonics and paleo elevation and all of this stuff that all together we're kind of putting together some of these pieces of what the earth was like back in the past but that is that's kind of a real challenge again one of our co-authors is a fabulous petrologist and so he's helping us in this case uh, put some of those pieces together but that's in my mind what we really need is kind of more of those constraints of the earth's history all right well, thank you very much for talking about your paper. We've got a couple of hard-hitting questions for you both at the end here. I'll start with mine. If you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in earth sciences or tectonics or any field for that matter, what would it be? I mean, the easy answer for me is the plate tectonic one because it's in my field. So it's going to drive me crazy if I don't finally know the answers. I mean, I'm kind of dancing around a little bit. We know some of the answers about why the Earth has tectonics and Venus doesn't, but we need that solved. I mean, that's just a core question in what we need in plate tectonics. The cool thing, if I can go on a little bit about plate tectonics is it's kind of macro science. Like it's, it's very visible science. So it's kind of the fundamental working of a planet. It's amazing in the 21st century that we don't know fundamentally why our Earth is this kind of rapidly changing geologic surface. 
and nothing else seems to be that way. So, I mean, it's a bit bizarre. We can't answer that really, really fundamental question among all of the science questions we have. So let me leave that as the first one I would want to answer, and I'll kick it to Erkan here next. Well, I don't know what to say, actually. <laughs> Can I use like more time to think about that? There are so many things. I mean, some people say they'd love to know if there's other life out there. <laughs> you know? Like any kind of scientific mystery, if you had the answer to. Oh, so <laughs> I would like to know if there are parallel universes or not. Actually. <laughs> oh. So this is kind of cool, you know, topic that I've... Like the multiverse theory? Yeah, I don't know. So if I'm so into the sci-fi movies, like a TV series. I, I enjoy watching them. So this parallel universes... It's a kind of interesting topic. So is there any other us, for example, somewhere, uh, depending on uh, maybe we created some other universes, like our all uh, decisions are live, created some other ones. I would like to see them if possible. Maybe there's a parallel universe where Venus has plate tectonics. <laughs> Sure, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we were so unlucky that we have, we don't have <laughs> plate tectonics on Venus. So just one last question to top things off. What brings you guys optimism? Optimism. Oh boy. Here, Ken, you better go first. I don't know. <laughs> the key is neither of them actually have optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. Maybe, um, I don't know, uh, increased scientific funding for your research, maybe? Or maybe the interests of young scientists going into the field? Or maybe new technologies that have been opening new doors that haven't happened, that haven't been opened in the past? Or maybe new social policies, political things going on, anything that brings you optimism uh, in your life or in your, or you're in your scientific field at all. One of the things I find really cool is I like that we still don't know so much. I like all of our unanswered questions. It's the fun thing about geology for me. I mean, it, it seems like the wild west out there a little bit in science in some ways. And that's a good thing. I'm saying that is a good thing, that geology seems really wide open compared to, and maybe I don't know some of the other sciences, compared to some of the other sciences. It feels like there's a lot of really big questions we still have to answer and they're not well constrained. So it leaves a lot of room for big ideas still. I think the paper we did came up with a big idea. Maybe in five years, we'll be proved to be completely wrong. It's fun though to wake up and think you can put these ideas out there still in in geology. So, I mean, that's one reason I stay optimistic. And, and so we have a couple more big questions. Maybe we can return to you guys with another podcast because we have another paper we're working on here. Where we're trying to answer another big one. And it is pretty wide open right now. The, the field is wide open and there's lots of room to run. So uh, that keeps me optimistic. Yeah, I agree. Also, actually, this modeling tools, Jordan modeling tools provides us really, really Good, great opportunity to test the hypothesis, actually, because when you read this, for example, old papers, geologists tend to draw some cartoons about this idea. So some of them are really, really wrong, because when you test the ideas, you said, no, it doesn't work. Now we have this opportunity to 
test this cartoonish maybe drawing, say if does it work or not. So, and sometimes they do, and it's good to prove that they are working. And sometimes they don't. So that's why maybe having this supercomputers or modeling tools is a good opportunity for us to be optimistic for the future. But also, I, I should add this. So this is just a tool. So we are just trying to discover what is happening in the Earth's history. And this is just a tool that we are using. Geologists use maybe go to the field, collect samples, examine the rocks, and we are using these computers. But at the end, we are searching the same thing. So this uh, secrets of the Earth. So. All right, cool. We have our ending quote as well. I picked this one because of Russ. I think it'll become apparent. Uh, this is a Tuzo Wilson quote. And he said, Much as I admired the elegance of physical theories, which at that time geology wholly lacked, I preferred a life in the woods to one in the laboratory. And I say that because Russ, I know, spends a lot of time at his cab- in his cabin up in the woods. And I think that you could relate. Sounds like heaven. That's part of why I got into geology. That's a great quote. Yeah, yeah. Tuzo, I should note that he, he formerly taught at U of T. He was a researcher at U of T as well. So there's a connection there. Absolutely. One of our stars. Yeah, we are building up on his research, actually. Mm-hmm. So. And we did have the Oz episode. We, we went into a little bit about Tuzo as well. So be sure to listen to that if you missed it. But otherwise, thank you, both of you, for your time. It's been a wild ride. I think we all learned a lot, and hopefully our listeners learned as well. Yeah, it was my pleasure, all of you. Thanks very much. It was fun. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us. So It's a pleasure to be here to talk to you. And thank you to our listeners as well. We hope that you tune in next time for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no rock unturned.